Davis, and Gene sitting up in the spinning zone. <laughs> you didn't get your bath today, you're, you'll be getting one. <laughs> And I'm sort of exhausted today. As soon as the class is over, we're heading for a birthday party for one of the grandkids down in Austin. So we'll get down there about one, and then we'll come back about four. We'll stay there for about two, come back and four, because I have class tomorrow. So uh, anyway, we're still going to have a good time. Now, what I was thinking of, there are several of you that are have some sort of form of cancer, because uh, I know that Gail has some uh, cancer on her hand. Where is Gail? Right over here. And uh, Jim Lang is fighting a, a melanoma, which is at this point gone. Uh, Leroy is facing some sort of cancer with a prostate cancer, something of that nature. And I thought we'd just pray for those of you who are facing this in the, you know, right now and in the months ahead. So what I want to do, I want to do something different to that. I want to ask Michelle Cusa, who had cancer when you were how old? Nine the first time and eleven the second time. I really didn't think she was going to live. Here she is, graduated Criswell College, and person has eternal life. And I'm going to ask her if she'll walk over to Gail and just put your hand on her shoulder, and I'll show you who Gail is. Come on over here. That beautiful lady with blonde hair right there is Gail. And Dr. Davis, if you would go and just put your hand on the shoulder of Leroy. Dr. Kane, if you would just go and put your hand on the shoulder of Jim Lang. If there's anyone else that's fighting a cancer situation that we would like to like? Okay, we have, uh, okay, we've got uh, David McKinnon. Joe, why don't you, Joe Lyon, why don't you go put your hand on the shoulder of David McKinnon. And Jim Ray, why don't you go back there, raise your hand. We have, come on, give me the names here. Gene Sauer. Gene Sauer. Sorry about that. It was another senior moment. <laughs> I had one last night when I was trying to tell somebody what I was teaching today in Sunday school. I've been working on it all week and I had no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, now we're going to pray. We're going to pray that the Lord's going to touch uh, even today through this prayer and in the weeks ahead those of you who are facing this because the word cancer scares people, doesn't it? Just another illness. Was there anything that Jesus didn't heal when he was on earth? Is there anything that he will not heal today? He says, if you pray and ask, he'll do it for us. So we're going to ask the Lord to comfort and heal the bodies of our brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you that you are a God that we can come to. You are the creator. You created our bodies. You created our bodies to heal themselves. You gave us doctors to to touch our bodies and uh, heal our bodies when our own bodies malfunction. But ultimately we come to you. And now we look at these situations. Gene Sauer, David McKenna, Jim Lang, and Leroy Howard, and Gail Owen. And they're all facing either operations or procedures in the days ahead. Some have had them in the past and they signs say that this cancer is still there, but they're still going, and they're trusting you. And now, Lord, we come together as a class, a body of believers, and we say, Lord Jesus, touch these bodies, uh, heal these souls, give them comfort and confidence that you are in control. Uh, take the cancer away, and six months from now, may each one of these individuals look back 
and be able to say praise the Lord because you intervened and you were a God who was gracious and kind to us in your healing power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Michelle Kusa is a testimony of God's healing power. We thank you, Michelle, for standing up and praying for Gail. Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 22, and I know what I'm speaking on. I looked at it again last night at this morning. Matthew chapter 22. And we are at income tax time, April 14th today. That means for about another month and a half, maybe up to June 1st, we'll continue through Matthew. And then we'll go into our Psalms for the summer. And then when the school year starts, we'll finish off maybe the last two chapters of Matthew. Okay, Matthew chapter 22. Now we are in a section where Jesus pronounces judgment upon the nation of Israel and especially its leaders who have led the people astray. Uh, the people are under leadership and they really can't do anything except what the leaders tell them to do, especially in the Roman Empire. And so Jesus is pronouncing judgment on Israel and its leaders and he does this through two means. First, he pronounces judgments through prophetic actions. He cleanses the temple and he curses the fig tree. Each one of these speaks in dramatic form of Israel's downfall and its judgment. Just as Jesus overturns the money tables in the temple, so the temple will be destroyed. And just as Jesus curses the fig tree, so Israel will face judgment. Why? Because it's not producing fruit. The second way he pronounces judgment on Israel and its leaders is through the use of parables. So last week we looked at two parables. The parables of the two sons. Man goes to his first son and he says, go into the field. And the son says, no. But later he changes his mind and he says, yes. He goes to the second son and he says, go into the field. And the son says, yes, daddy. But he doesn't go. Which one really is the good son? And it's the one who said no, but changed his mind. He repented. And he does what his father wants. The other ones professed they would do it, but they don't. That's what Israel's like. It's Israel is like that second son who says, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. But then they don't obey the Lord. Profession is not enough. What he wants you to do is be faithful and follow through with your commitment to him. The second parable that we saw is the parable of the vineyard. And he talks about the vineyard being Israel and the the ones who are taking care of the field, the vine dressers being the leaders of Israel, and guess what they do? Instead of producing fruit and turning the results over to the Lord and the prophets over to the Lord, they take possession of the field as if they own it. And that's exactly what the religious leaders do. They are controlling the nation with an iron hand. And they said, we will kill the sun, and that field will become ours. And if you were with us last week, you know that. And so Jesus says, and guess what? What is he going to do to those vine dressers? Those ones who are supposed to be protecting Israel and caring for Israel, the vineyard, but instead are controlling it and, and claiming it as their own, as if it's their divine right. He says he will judge those vine dressers. And that's a picture of Israel and its leaders being judged. 
Now we come to the third parable, the parable of the wedding feast. Now let's remember what a parable is. A fictitious story. A made-up story. Drawn from real life uh, to drive home a point. And the point Jesus is always driving home is that God has a kingdom. And some people are going to enter into the kingdom and others are going to be judged. They're going to be left out of the kingdom. So let's look at this parable. Look at uh, Matthew 22. And we're going to look at start in verse 1. And Jesus answered and he spoke to them again. This would be the religious leaders that he's speaking to. And he spoke to them again by parables. And he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Now, you can see that this parable is about the kingdom of God. And we recognize certain characters here. Since a parable is sort of a symbolic story, these people represent real individuals. So, first of all, we see that there is a king in verse 2. The king represents God. He arranges a marriage, which means a marriage banquet. He's going to have a big celebration. The marriage feast or the marriage banquet represents the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is often pictured as a wedding feast. You're familiar with that, right? From Isaiah and also (coughs) Revelation. So the wedding feast or the marriage feast represents the kingdom of God. It's where life in the kingdom takes place. It says he arranges that marriage in verse 2 for his son. The son would be Messiah here. The one who is the king's son. Then, in verse 3, he sends out his servants. These are messengers of the king, proclaiming this message of the kingdom about the marriage feast. These servants would be the prophets, the evangelists, the apostles, God's spokespeople. And then you notice there's an invitation. Uh, he, He goes out and he calls those who are invited. Those who are invited are the Jews. Okay? The Jews and their leaders. Notice it's God coordinating this whole thing. He's orchestrating this whole uh, affair. He sponsors the banquet. It's his banquet. But attendance to into the banquet, attendance to the banquet takes an invitation. An invitation. Likewise, attendance into the kingdom involves an invitation. That's why we go out and we preach the gospel. We're inviting people to come into the kingdom. So does that make sense to you at this point? Now, these people that God is inviting into the banquet feast are his subjects. Who does the king invite to a banquet? When he's going to have a great big banquet, he invites those that are his subjects. Those who claim to be loyal to him. Those who work for the king. The king has a big kingdom. He has all these people working for him. They're his subjects. And uh, he invites them to participate in a banquet that he is throwing for his son. It's an honor to be invited into the banquet or the feast. And to be invited means you're under obligation to attend. You know, he had a king and he has subjects. And he says, come, that's what you do. You show up. You're under obligation. Not to show up would be to insult the king who's invited you. 
And this is all going to make sense. These people claim to be subjects to the king and obedient to the king. And you're going to see what happens when he calls those people who were invited. Look what it says at the end of verse 3. So he called those who were invited, and they were what? Not willing to come. Now we see a call, and we see an invitation in here. The ones who are called to the banquet feast are the ones who were first invited to the banquet feast. And this is why it's important to understand meals in Bible times. When you had a big banquet, and you're going to have it, let's say, in the spring, a big banquet for your son, maybe that's on April 15th, that was when you were going to do it, on, for our case, let's say, uh, IRS day, and you were having a big banquet for your son. In the Bible times, what they would do is they would have to write a handwritten invitation. And that handwritten invitation would be delivered to all the different people who were going to be invited months in advance. Months in advance. Remember, you couldn't send invitations out through email, through the postal service, which wouldn't arrive anyway, any of these other things. It was hand-delivered. Okay? Now, that invitation's already come out. And they, there's already been a response. RSVP, and everybody says, we're coming. So now what happens? Now it comes the day of the banquet. Well, when should we show up today? Well, you you got a watch? Oh, no, we don't have watches in the first century. Oh, i got a cell phone. Let me look on my cell phone. Oh, you can't look on your cell phone to see what time it is. So when it came the day for the banquet, guess what the king would do? The runners would go out to those who were invited and say, Come on, <laughs> it's time. Drop what you're doing. You know, get dressed. Time for the banquet. And that's what we have here. And look what it says at the end of verse 3. They were not willing to come. These are subjects to the king who said they would come. Yes, Dad, we'll go out into the fields, but then what do they do? Don't go out in the fields. Remember, that's the parable of the two sons. Notice, not willing to come. It's a matter of will. You see that? It's a matter of will. So that is scene number one. Scene number two, so we have the runners coming out, and they said, no, I assume that the runners go back and tell the king. He said, wait a second. These are my loyal subjects, <laughs> and they're not willing to come. So look at verse four, scene number two. Again, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. So he sends out the second group. Now, if I were the king, I'd lash out at the people. Said so you responded, said you're going to come. Now you're not going to come. You're what are you doing? Insulting me? Which, by the way, in a society of honor and shame, and we still have those kinds of societies today. Where do we have societies of honor and shame, Lauren? You know a society like that? Huh? Not here. We have no shame in America. <laughs> like in Japan. Based on honor and shame. If you shame yourself, sometimes you just do what? Yeah, Harry, carry, kill yourself rather than bring shame to the family. It's an honor and shame society. This is an honor and shame society. And by not coming, they're shaming the king. And 
you'd think the king would lash out. But this is a different kind of a king. Very gracious king. He sends them out again. He says, hey, maybe they really don't understand how good this fact was going to be. And look what he says he's done. Look at the menu in verse 4. Look at that fatted cattle. Fatted cattle. Hey, he says, I bought the prize-winning steer at the Texas State Fair. And we're talking about you know, $394 a pound here. This is the best that money buys. You need, to, you need to come and eat. This is great. You, won't, you don't want to miss this. And look at the timing in verse 4. The timing. He says, toward the end of the verse, all things are ready. You see that? It's time to come right now. All things are ready. Now, if this is the kingdom, this makes sense. It's sort of like, the kingdom of God is at what? Hand. No time to delay. Time to get into the kingdom. See? And that's what this is saying. So he gives this command, come. And that's a command there. This is pretty strong. Come. But look at the next verse. But. Boy. But they made light of it. They show no regard for the king. They act like this is a big game. Or, ah, you know, well, this is no big deal. They made light of it. And they went their ways. They go just continue to go about their own affairs. One to his farm, that's rural affairs. Another to his business, urban affairs. And so here we see these people aren't concerned about the king's affairs. They're more concerned and preoccupied with their own affairs. And thus their priorities are different than the king's priorities. Although they're supposed to be subject to the king and say, yes, Lord, and do what he wants them to do. But this sort of makes sense, doesn't it? So what happens is in verse 6, it says, and the rest of the servants treated them, that, were the, that would be the messengers who came out to uh, call them to the banquet, the rest of his servants. Notice it's servants. It's his, his subjects, his servants, who are supposed to be serving the king or serving themselves. What they do is they treat the rest of those, the messengers, spitefully, and they kill them. Just get rid of them. Now, if you think that saying no to the king and just going about your own affairs instead of attending to his affairs is bad, this is the worst thing you could do because this is this is worse than just outright right willful of rebellion. This is violent action against the king. Wars have been started for less than this. This is a violent act against the king. Now, at this point, this is sort of an act of treason. At this point, the king responds. And guess what? His patience has become exhausted. As gracious as this man is. Look what he does now in verse 7. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and he destroyed those murderers and burned their City. Now remember, this is a fictitious story. But it has a point. And the point is, 
that the king's patience has run out. And he sends out, and he sends his armies out, and he destroys them. Now, in the story, we don't know when he does this. We don't know if he waits until the wedding's over, this and out the armies. We don't give him those kinds of details, but it's just a story. But we know when it happens in history. Because in 70 AD, Rome is destroyed. And the temple is burned down by the Roman armies. Is the word army in there? In history, the Roman armies come in and they destroy the city of Jerusalem and burn down the temple. Now notice in our story, it says he'll send out his armies, God's armies, or the king's armies, but in history, whose armies is it that destroys, uh, destroys Jerusalem? It's the Roman army. So you see that he's using natural means to bring about judgment. God's not the one that's doing it, but He's using natural means, and He's the one behind the scenes. Now, when you look at this, this is all the stuff that Jesus prophesied, and this is how it worked. This is how judgment is being brought to those Jewish leaders who have led the nation astray. So, can we draw a lesson from this? Since this is a parable, the lesson would be something like this. Don't resist, resist God's invitation into the kingdom. Don't resist God's invitation into the kingdom, or else you will be judged. And that's, I mean, that's the main part of the story. It's not enough to say, when you hear the invitation, go forward at the end of the service and say, I will, I will, but then don't live for him, and don't be obedient. That's not good enough, is it? It's not enough to just say, you know, respond to the RSVP, and, and then do nothing about it when God requires you to uh, prioritize your duties and obey Him. So now we have basically that first group of people, the Jews and the religious leaders, destroyed. They're not going to come to the banquet. They're not entering the kingdom of God. So now we have a second round of invitations that go out. Look verse 8. Then he said to his servants, Look, the wedding's ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. We've got an empty banquet hall here. No one's here. The ones that were invited are not worthy. Why aren't they worthy? Why weren't the original crowd worthy to get in? Because they did what? They refused to come. You can blame God to what chose some to come and some not to come. It's, it's their fault. They reject the invitation. Remember, and it's the, the word is worthy there. They're not worthy. You see that in verse 8? Those who were invited were not worthy to come in. Why weren't they worthy? Because they rejected the call after they were invited. Now, Jesus in Matthew's Gospel sends out the twelve. And you should remember this. And I want you to turn back to, to Matthew chapter 10 where he sends out the 12 apostles. And you see the same concept of worthy, unworthy back there. And it sort of defines for us what this means. So Matthew chapter 10. And when you get there, look down to uh, about verse 7. And he sends out the twelve apostles to, to the Jews. He says, don't go to the Gentiles at this point. 
Uh, don't enter the city of Samaria, the Samaritans at this point in verse 5, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now watch this, verse 7. <clears throat> and as you go, preach. Here's what I want you to preach. The kingdom of God is what? At hand. Everything's ready. Okay? The kingdom of God is at hand. Now look over at verse 11. Verse 11. Matthew 10 and verse 11. And whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is what? Worthy. Who's worthy? This is the key word here. Who's worthy? And stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, when you're going door to door now, sharing this message, is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if you knock on the door and they say, get lost, buddy, look what you're to do. Verse 13. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or the city, shake the dust off of your feet. Surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than that city. So here he's talking about those who are worthy and those who are unworthy. Those who are worthy to come in are those who receive you and the word. Those who are not worthy are those who reject you and reject the word. Look down that same chapter, Matthew 10. Look down at verse 36 and 37. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. We're familiar with that. He who loves his father and mother more than me is not, look, worthy of me. He who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see that? He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So what we have is we have this issue of worthiness. And we won't turn there, but back in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, after he preaches repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and the Jewish leaders come up and say, hey, baptize us. He says, let's see the fruit of repentance that's, let's bring forth the fruit that's worthy of repentance. And he says, you're not worthy. You talk a good game, but you don't live the game. You say you're going to obey God, but you do everything against God, and so you're not worthy. So when you go back to Matthew 22, and you look again at verse 8, it makes sense when he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. In other words, the kingdom of God is at hand, but those who were invited are not what? Worthy. They didn't accept it, the invitation. They said yes, but then they don't do anything. And in verse 9, therefore, now look at that, because they were not worthy, that would be the Jewish people and the leaders, therefore go into the highways. And as many as you find, invite into the wedding. Go beyond the city gates. Get beyond the Jewish sector. Uh, whoever you see, it could even be Gentiles. Even invite them into the wedding feast. And what makes this so interesting is that many of Matthew's readers, reading this 50 years later, fall into that category of Gentiles. This is written to a Gentile congregation, probably up in Syria somewhere. And they are Gentiles. And guess what's happened? You know why the Gospels come to them? Because it went first to the Jews, and what did they do? rejected it, and now it comes to the Gentiles, and they are the recipient of the gospel, simply because the Jewish leaders 
uh, and uh, the nation itself uh, has rejected the gospel. So now we see the result. So those servants went out into the highways and they gathered all whom they found. Now this is interesting. Both good and bad. You see that? Both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Who would be the bad? Hard. April 15th tax collectors. <clears throat> they are worthy to enter. The Jewish leaders, the people of God, quote, not worthy, but even the bad harlots and tax collectors enter in. What makes them worthy and the others not worthy? Only one thing. When they heard the invitation, they responded. And they came to the banquet. And by responding, that means they repented. <laughs> That's what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. And they gained a new status. A status of worth. Now, to the Jewish leaders, if they saw a prostitute or a harlot or a tax collector, they said, unworthy, unworthy. <laughs> Don't get within ten feet of those people. Don't invite somebody like that to your dinner. Remember, one of the questions the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples is, why does your master always eat with sinners? And he eats with sinners because he considers them worthy, and they, they gain a new status. So now we have this grand entrance. This is really interesting. But, now look at verse 11. But, when the king came in, now we're assuming that the banquet, in the sense, people have all gathered. Maybe they're milling around and you know they're eating hors d'oeuvres. They haven't actually reclined at the banquet yet. The king comes in uh, after all the guests have assembled. He sees the guest and he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Boy, he got into the banquet hall. But he wasn't dressed the right way. He wasn't properly attired. He had an invitation. And he said yes. And he actually shows up for the wedding. And he gets into the wall, into the hall. And when the king comes in, he looks at these grimy clothes. Soiled. Looks like the man hasn't you know, washed in a week, maybe a month. Who knows how much? Uh, he hasn't reclined yet at the banquet, but he's in the hall. And the king said, what in the world's going on here? Because there was a certain protocol. Look at verse 12. It says, so he said, friend. I noticed that. He didn't say enemy, did he? He said, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Man had no defense. He knew the rules. He knew what you had to wear when you came to a wedding feast. Now remember, this is a parable. It's a fictitious story, but it's going to drive home a point. The man comes and he shows up to the wedding, but he comes on his own terms. 
He comes dressed the way he wants to be dressed in his own righteousness, so-called. Instead of being dressed the way the king wants him dressed. And what happens is that the king is basically going to exclude him from the feast itself. So, now we get another point, and that is, not everybody is going to get into the kingdom. Even those who get through the door, we might liken this to church people. You know, a lot of people walk forward, they hear a message, they get baptized, they make a commitment to the Lord, and never see Him again. They just, you know, they've, they've said, yes, Lord, they've answered the invitation, but you don't see any results. But others, they will come in, and they will get baptized, and then they will show up to the church. Boy, they don't look like anybody else that you've seen, not outwardly, but they don't live for God. So they get into the church, but they're not attired in the, they're not clothed in Christ, not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They're clothed in their own self-righteousness, and they come on their terms, and they don't like anything. And so what he does, the man is speechless. He's going to be excluded from the reign of God. We see this. Look at verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, Find that man. Take him away. And cast him into outer darkness. Where there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. And this is representative, representative of hell. And so here's a man who's so close to the kingdom. And yet he ultimately doesn't recline at the banquet. He gets into the hall but he doesn't recline at the banquet. Now we have this explanation. And here's the explanation Jesus gives. Because many are called, but few are chosen. One of the most confusing verses in the Bible. That verse explains the whole parable and why this man is going to be excluded after he already was in the hall. Because, he says, verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, let me draw some conclusions here and try to figure this out for us. Okay? <clears throat> we see in verse 14 that there has to be a difference between those who are called and those who are chosen. Do you see that? Many are called, but what? Few are chosen. There's a difference between being called and a difference between being chosen. Now, who are the called? The called are the same ones who are invited. Remember back, back in verse 3? Look up there. Verse 3. He sent out his servants to call those who were what? Invited. So the ones who are called are the ones who were previously what? Invited. And they said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Right? And then the time comes to enter and they are called. So the ones who are called are the same ones who are invited. The chosen, however, are those who answer the call, show up to the banquet, and are accepted by the king on the basis that they are worthy because they have repented of their sins and they've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They don't come on their own terms, they come on the terms that God sets. 
So now you see in verse 14, it says, The many are called, and we have a lot of people in the churches who answered the call. They said, Yes, Lord. And they show up on Sundays. But, notice the end of verse 14, The many are called, but the few are chosen. Now, the many, the phrase the many are called, or many are called, literally the many are called, is a figure of speech that means everyone's called. It's in contrast to few. Okay? It means everyone is called. Okay? Who's called? Well, the Jews are called. The Jewish leaders are called. The Gentiles are called. The good are called. The bad are called. God extends his invitation. He calls everybody to come. The invitation is universal. Okay? But the few are chosen. Okay? Uh, not everyone will enter the kingdom of God. The few are those, the few are those, the chosen are those who are prepared for the banquet itself. They are the ones that are clothed in the right stuff, which is the righteousness of Christ, not their own self-righteousness. Those are the ones who are chosen. Broad is the way, right? Broad is the way. Wide is the gate. And many wander into that. But narrow is the way, and straight is the gate. And how many enter therein? The few enter therein. The few are those who are chosen. It's not so much that God just chooses them in some sort of, uh, you know, nilly-willy way. So, well, that one I choose. That. The one who is chosen is the one who comes in, let's say, to the church, for example, and participates in the righteousness of Christ and doesn't come on his own terms. The vast majority, according to this passage here, if this parable is a reflection of reality, is that the majority will not enter the kingdom of God. It's the story of the sowers all over again. Remember the sowers? There were four kinds of people. There were those that fell among the thorns, right? And the thorns came up and choked them, and that, Jesus said, represented the cares of the world. I'm more concerned about my business. I'm more concerned about my farm. We just saw it. Some fell on hard ground. Didn't take it all. The rebellions. who go out and they just kill these guys, right? Hard ground. Hardened by people. Some falls on shallow ground. It pops up. But it has no root. It's like this guy. He gets in the banquet hall, but obviously there's something wrong. There's no fruit in his life. And then some fall on good soil. It produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's the chosen. So you can see that all these parables follow this kind of a pattern. So only those who, where the gospel takes root and there is a there's the fruits of repentance that show forth, those are, those, those are the few, those are the chosen. And for us it should be a wake-up call. And I think it was a wake-up call for Matthew's audience. Because if Matthew's audience lived somewhere around 75 A.D. or 85 A.D., we're not sure exactly the exact date, but if they lived, let's say, 85 A.D., and that's where most scholars put Matthew's Gospel now, it's written to these people, they know something's happened. Written to Syrians, Syrian believers, in 85 A.D., and they read this parable, they know that something in this parable has already happened. What's happened? In 70 A.D., 
Rome's armies surrounded Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and burned down the temple. This prophecy, if they're reading it after it happened, they know it's already happened. They know God's word's true. It's going to happen. And they're going to take this passage very seriously. And this is we should be taking this passage very seriously. This should be a wake-up call for us to examine our own lives and say, am I clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Yes, I'm in the midst of God's kingdom people right now. But am I clothed in my own righteousness or am I clothed in the righteousness of Christ? I'm afraid that many of us have entered this banquet hall that we call the church, but we're never going to recline at the Messianic banquet. Because we're not, there's no fruit in our life. There's no, no evidence of repentance in our life. Okay. So, uh, and those with the wrong garments, spotted and blemished, are going to be excluded. There's going to be judgment. What does Jesus say he wants his church to be? A church without what? Spot or blemish. So if we are have a, if our clothing, as this parable puts it, our outward clothing, is spotted and blemished, then we do not enter the kingdom of God. We do not make it to the ultimate messianic banquet at the end of the age, but we too will be judged. Well, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And I look, I never knew you. Not enough to say, Lord, Lord. There has to be the evidence. So, we need to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But then we need to live for the Lord, and live for the Lord, and live for the Lord. So, that is the two enacted uh, prophecies. The cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree that speaks of judgment. And then the three parables ending with the wedding feast that speaks of judgment. Even though you've heard the message, even though you've been invited... You've been called. Guess what? You can still miss out. And even be in the banquet hall and still miss out on the ultimate wedding feast. It's a wake-up call. And we need to take it as such as Lord, we thank you that uh, each one of us has been invited and we've heard the call. We've said, yes, Lord. And now we're in the midst of your people, just like this man was in the midst of, of the banquet hall. But Lord, we need to examine ourselves. We need to say, is there evidence of repentance in our life? Is there evidence of faithfulness in our life? And we come in under false pretenses on our own terms. Or are we indeed living for you? Oh Lord, help us to say yes, Lord, and help us to live for you, Lord. Help us to be obedient servants of God our King. In Christ's name we pray. Thank <laughs> you.